This is a reminder you're listening to the delayed broadcast here on Faith FM. If you would like to listen to the live show live and participate in the quiz and the prizes and all the other fun things that happen on Faith FM Breakfast Show, then simply download the Faith FM app available on Apple or Android platforms. This is The Breakfast Show. You are back with Encounter with God. 20 million movement, 20 million people all studying the same passage of the Bible at the same time, even though... Maddie, we're still a tad behind. We are. We're still we were, we were in a good three. place to catch up last week, but then we had a long weekend, yep. which means that we're still a tad behind. But yep. we will catch up. We will catch up with the rest of the world. That's okay. If uh, Just stay with us. We'll get there. Mm. All right. So, Maddie, what have you got for us there as uh, a next clue for our quiz? Yes, let's give away another clue. Um, who am I? I was a Pharisee and a member of the Jewish ruling council. I came to Jesus at night. Okay, who was the Pharisee who who uh, came to Jesus at night? In fact, this particular Pharisee is a central figure in a new TV show about the life of Christ, and the name of it right now escapes me. Uh, maybe our producer can find it, but um, I just well, watched look, I don't it. know which one you're talking yeah, about. No, no I've got to say this. I detest, I just absolutely detest dramatic portrayals of the life of Jesus because all of the ones I've ever seen are so cringy and so lame and they make Jesus to be almost effeminate Mm -hmm. uh, that it's just like it makes my skin crawl and it's like I don't want to have some actor's face in my mind when I think about Jesus. But I did, um, you know, Sort of walk in while some people were watching this particular one and watch it for 10 minutes. Is it the Living Bible? No. No, no not that one. Uh, the Chosen. Yeah, yeah, the there Chosen. you go. Producer Marta has, uh, has, has found it. And I did watch this one called The Chosen, and I think it's actually a really good depiction. And this guy is a uh, major, major character in that. There's, a, there's, a, there's another clue for you. Anyway... Um, Let's uh, get on with our Bible study. Okay, so we are supposed to be in Daniel chapter 4. We are still in Daniel chapter 3 because there are some things in Daniel chapter 3 that are just too good not to miss out on. So what I want to do is to cover today, if possible, uh, the political environment of Daniel chapter 3, the political historical environment of Daniel chapter 3, because I think that it uh, sheds a lot of light on the trustworthiness of the Bible and the historical accuracy of the Bible. And we haven't yet dealt with in depth the parallel between Daniel 3 and Revelation 13. Uh, This is critical for us to understand because Revelation 13 is about our day and age. And so Daniel 3 really is there to show us how to live in our day. um, And how to prepare for what we are going to face in the very, very near future. So just a quick review of Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, you find that Nebuchadnezzar builds an image. It is made entirely of gold. It is a direct reaction to the dream that he had and which took place in a very public manner of Daniel chapter 2 where he had a dream of an image that was made up of four different metals and one ceramic. Uh, That dream portrayed the demise of the Babylonian Empire and the three other empires that would follow after that before it collapsed, fell apart and would never ever be reunited together again. 
This was a public relations disaster. It was a political disaster for Nebuchadnezzar. He's in the second year of his reign, and now he's got a prophecy that has come about in a supernatural manner, and no one can deny it that has predicted the end of his reign. That's, that's, that is the last thing that you want to have to be dealing with if you are a new Babylonian king. Uh, the events of chapter 3 are a direct reaction to that, and so he builds an image that is made of all gold. In other words, if you are thinking about um, an insurrection or an assassination, which there was always somebody thinking about in those days, then you need not do so because you know this is a kingdom that will last forever. And uh, yeah, you don't need to worry about any of that stuff. We are going to be here uh, for the rest of eternity. There's been a few uh, kingdoms that have come along with that kind of an idea in mind. And of course, then we have the events where Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they're like, no, we're not going to bow down. We're not going to worship this image. We serve Yahweh. And from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, it's like, well, I've already conquered Yahweh. When I conquered Judah, I conquered Yahweh. Mm-hmm. Yahweh is a conquered God. My gods are clearly superior, else I would not have been able to conquer you. Um, all of the treasures of your temple, of Yahweh's uh, temple, are in my temple, of my gods. So therefore, why should I worry about your God, this God called Yahweh, and who is the Jewish God? And, um, and of course, they're like, well, actually, you know, we serve a God who's able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, regardless of how hot you make it. Um, but, you know, if not, we're still not going to deny him. You know, and in Nebuchadnezzar's mind is like, just, just come across to Bel and Marduk, you know. I mean, these are bigger, more powerful gods. Why are you worrying about this, uh, this um, you know, relatively minor God that you have down there in the land of Judah? Anyway, of course, we have the story about how Nebuchadnezzar makes the furnace seven times hotter than it ever been heated before, probably because he'd come across Yahweh before and had a certain level of respect for him as a result of the events of Daniel chapter 2. They are thrown in there. In the context of the great controversy, everything that Nebuchadnezzar does, and by extension, everything that Satan does, is heightening the knowledge of the power of God, of Yahweh. It is all in the service. Here you have Satan unwittingly acting in the service of God because the miracle that is about to take place. And who would have expected, would Satan have even expected Jesus Christ himself to come down personally personally and visibly and personally, that wasn't mm. entirely out of context, um, and stand there in the fire with them. Of course, um, this was something unexpected. It was a miracle of the first order. The golden image is forgotten about. Nebuchadnezzar, he issues a decree. Uh, and it's interesting, um, Maddie, why don't you go down to uh, Daniel chapter 3, uh, verse 29, if you could read that one. 29 and 30, if you could read that for us, please. Therefore I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb, and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There is no other God who can rescue like this. Okay, so this is um, Nebuchadnezzar's kind of favorite thing to do, is to um, turn people's houses into a pile of poo, it says in the KJV version. Um, dung is the uh, word, and of course yours uh, makes it yeah just that much, much little bit nicer by saying a I pile if, of ash. I wonder if that actually happened or if it was 
Just a figure of speech in those days. <laughs> well, it's a figure of speech in these days, so um, not hard to imagine it's a figure of speech in those days. But, you know, this guy was a psycho. Yeah. And I imagine that he could easily do this. You know, at least turn it into a pile of ash. Yeah. Maybe not a pile of dung, but possibly, you know, a place to, uh, to get rid of, um, you know, a sewer. You know, put a, put a sewage treatment <laughs> plant right there. Like, yes, let's put it right there where your house was. Um, yeah, interesting, interesting language. And interesting Nebuchadnezzar's response. You know, anyone speaks against this God, they're in trouble. It becomes his guardian all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This God is uh, this God is a really powerful God. I'm a little bit scared of this God. In fact, I'm qu- probably quite a lot scared of this God. So whatever happens, I don't want anyone anywhere in my empire speaking against Yahweh. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar is starting to learn about uh, the real God, the actual God, the only God, and the power of the only God, the ruler and creator of the universe. He's starting to learn about it, but you know he's got a ways to go. Yes, definitely. Yeah, he's like you know. If any, it's anyway. I think also he would have been shocked by the uh, the calmness of this God, if you want to put it that way. You know, God doesn't Yahweh doesn't come down from the sky and stop the process and confront Nebuchadnezzar in an open. No, he just quietly steps into the furnace with his, <laughs> with his three um, and. Just eyeballs in front yeah. of the furnace, like, yeah, okay, exactly. what are you going to do now? <laughs> I'm standing right here mm. with these guys. <laughs> so I think it's unlike, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, unlike what Nebuchadnezzar would have expected from a supernatural being, from a god, to, to just do that and not even pay any attention to him. The other thing about the ancient gods was that they lived in many ways very human lives. You know, the ancient yeah. gods would, you know, they would, they would have affairs, they would cheat on each other, they would have children and offspring, um, they would go to war with each other, they would kill each other, they would, you know, cut each other apart. And in many ways, he's got a fire hot enough here to destroy a god. Mm-hmm. And this god has just, you know, calmly just stepped in. Yep. It's <laughs> great. Okay, so there's a, uh, a number of questions that we have to ask ourselves from a historical perspective. If we look at the Babylonian Empire, you would think that an event of this magnitude would have um, some record, mm. particularly considering that you know they kept their records, they carved their records into clay and stone, which means that they are much better preserved than our digital records today. Listening to Faith FM, positively different radio. Yeah, so our digital records of these days are pretty fragile, and in those days they're like, yeah, no, we want our we want our records to last the next couple of thousand years, and so they'd they'd uh, you know write them in clay or stone, and if they of course they're in clay, then they'd be uh, turned into ceramic, and we can still read them today, which is great. Maybe we should do a little bit more of that for future generations uh, to dig up one day here in our country. But anyway, needless to say, that was what took place. Um, and even given the very small amount of material that has been discovered. So when you think about archaeology, you've got to remember that um, you know 1% of potential archaeological sites have been excavated. Out of those sites that have even been excavated, 1% on average of each site is excavated. So we've got know, a tiny cross-section of history. Tiny cross-section. The archaeologists will go in, they'll dig a trench, and they'll draw their interpretations from that trench. Then you have um, about 1% of available artifacts that are in that 1% of that site 
that is excavated that are in that one percent of that of the possible sites to excavate that have actually survived, because unless it's stone or unless it is a non-perishable metal or unless it is ceramic, it's not going to last a couple of thousand years. Yeah, you know, wood and clay and leather and all that kind of stuff they just you know disappear in a very short space of time, mm. or they're burnt or whatever it might be. I think it's incredible that we have the amount of oh, archaeological material to back up the Bible. The, the, the Bible, exactly. Yeah, um, considering those circumstances, it is. It is absolutely astounding. Um, so, w- within that one percent of one percent of one percent, we have to ask ourselves the question: You know, um, was there ever an event that would correspond to what we have here in this story? Was there ever an event where there was a need for Nebuchadnezzar to call the entire empire together? for what essentially was a loyalty ceremony. Was there, Lyle? Was there? Was there an occasion when all those leaders did actually turn up in Babylon? That would be incredible. Is if, it, if we found that in archaeology, that would be amazing. Is it attested to in history? Uh, was there ever an event, now here's an interesting question, that led to the promote and resulted in, because the last verse here says, then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Was there ever an event that led to the promotion of these three guys? Do we have a record of that? Um, And right along with that, was there ever an occasion during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar that indicates that Yahweh suddenly became a really popular god throughout the world. You got me on the edge of my seat, Lyle. Okay, 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 okay. You knew I was going to get to history in, uh, in the book of Daniel, so let me, just enjoy, let me just enjoy a little bit of history here for a moment. So if we go back to the year, um, where are we going, to the year 595 B.C., there is a rebellion breaks out. It's led by Nabu Ahibulut. And this was not surprising in those days. Nebuchadnezzar had been in power for about 12 years at this point. Um, And, you know, to go through a reign without ever having a rebellion break out somewhere would be unusual. Anyway, so this rebellion breaks out. And the record states, the cuneiform record states, in the tenth year of the king of Ak- uh, the king of Akkad was in his own land. From the month of Kislev to the month of Tebet, there was a rebellion in Akkad. With arms, he slew many of his own army. His own hand captured his enemy. So this is Nebuchadnezzar putting down a rebellion. This rebellion, uh, led by uh, Nabu Ahi Bulut, was obviously you know, he would have been a, a general in Nebuchadnezzar's army. He's broken off. You know, a portion of that army and rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, so that's in 595 BC. The next year, what happens? Let's just work our way down through a sequence of events. The very next year, you have, uh, so now go to 594 BC, uh, the Babylonian army does a show of force by, by marching through the western provinces, uh, which leads us to indicate that um, when Nahu Abi Bullet, I think I pronounced that right, Uh, Yeah, Nabu Ahi Bullet started this particular rebellion. Really, the seat of that rebellion was in the west. So it's coming from the western provinces, and so Nebuchadnezzar marches his army through there just as a show of force. Um, And then he requires the entire empire and the leadership of the entire empire to go to Babylon to reaffirm their loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar. There you have Daniel chapter 3. 
Okay, here it comes. Now, of course, we have you know multiple records of this in cuneiform, but we also have the record of it in Jeremiah 51, verse 59 to 64, where King Zedekiah himself was required to be there in Babylon to reaffirm and re-swear his loyalty to the king. This, this gives us a bit of a date for Daniel chapter 3. If it does. It, it, summer, okay, doesn't it? Okay. Gets, yeah. it gets I'll, I'll it gets better. It gets better. <laughs> yeah. All right. So then the next question we have to ask ourselves. So, so far, do we have a need for it? Was there any events that ever uh, came up that required the need for a loyalty oath? Yes, there was. A major rebellion in which, you know, according to the record, if Nebuchadnezzar is killing people himself that were a part of his own army, if he is personally involved in conflict... That's a major rebellion. When he gets down off his chariot and starts fighting hand-to-hand, you know, this is no minor rebellion. No, he's He's, afraid for his life. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so was there ever a need for a loyalty ceremony? Yes, there was. Was there ever an occasion when all the leaders of the empire were called together uh, for this purpose? Yes, there was. Um, What about an increase in the popularity of Yahweh? Go on. Okay, so Zedekiah... Cop this. Zedekiah goes to Babylon. He re-swears his loyalty oath. They're in Babylon. While he's there, the events of Daniel chapter 3 take place and suddenly Yahweh is front and center. So Zedekiah is the king. And you've got to remember that um, Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judah three times. And Zedekiah was the last king. And Daniel was taken captive in the first invasion. Mm -hmm. So Zedekiah, he's a client king of the Babylonian Empire. Um and so when um when he goes there, obviously you know he comes from a micronation. Judah is a micronation. It's like a little itty bitty state within the empire. Um, it's one of the smallest nations of the empire. But suddenly, Zedekiah's God is front and center to the whole empire. Not only that, but Zedekiah's God is shown to be one who is prepared to stand up to publicly face down the Babylonian gods and the Babylonian emperor. So you think this would have given Zedekiah a bit of courage? Well, what's interesting that the moment he gets back, you've got this guy by the name of Hanani. Now, Hanani is a false prophet. He's always making stuff up. And he immediately proclaims uh, the return of the exiles in two years' time. So he's reading the political wind here. He sees Yahweh has suddenly come into favor. So therefore, if I make this prophecy, maybe it'll come true and give me some mm-hmm. credibility. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so you'll find that in Jeremiah chapter 28, those events taking place. All right. What else happens? Okay. So in Jeremiah 27, you've got a conference taking place in Jerusalem. And at this conference, a whole bunch of major nations, and one superpower turn up. So you've got the kings of Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, and Sidon who turn up in Jerusalem to plot rebellion against Babylon. Why did they choose a micronation? Why did they choose a nobody and a nothing nation? they've got a god. Because they suddenly gone, you know what? None of our gods have been able to or willing to stand up against Babylon. Bel and Marduk in Babylon, but maybe Yahweh is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So maybe if we go there to Jerusalem and get on Yahweh's side, maybe we can pull something off. And I'm guessing all these nations were in the Western province. They're all in the West, yep. where the rebellion is. They are all Western province nations. Okay, then 
you have a superpower turns up. And that's Egypt. Now, Egypt is an empire that can rival Babylon. Mm-hmm. They want in fact, in the, on the action. They that, see this that, as okay, an opportunity. There is an opportunity. So, uh, the Tyrians, the Sidonians, the Judahites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, um, they all make an alliance with Egypt. This is all taking place straight after Daniel chapter 3. So, like, yep, let's get together with Egypt. And, of course, Jeremiah is warning about this, you know, don't go down to Egypt. And, of course, they go down to Egypt. Jeremiah ends up down there in Egypt with them to minister to them. He becomes kind of like their chaplain. Okay, then you have, oh, I'm running out of time. Oh, that's no good. (laughs) But Samaticus II, who is the pharaoh, takes a tour of Phoenicia and Palestine without conflict. More about that in just a moment.
Melissa Otto with Father of the Fatherless. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM, and we are having a history lesson, so I'm having lots of fun it here is, this morning. It's incredible, like the amount of oh, uh, political intrigue. And, there is. Yeah. There's so much happening right here. So let's, uh, let's just do a, 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 quick, re, a, a quick rehash. Um, in 595 BC, you have a rebellion that is led by Nabu Ahibulut, um, in which Nebuchadnezzar comes rather close to losing his own life. He has to fight himself personally to retain his crown. Uh, the very next year, he does a show of force in the Western provinces, showing that this was a rebellion that came from the Western provinces, um, and then requires the entire empire to turn up in Babylon to re-swear their loyalty to himself. And, of course, we have the record of Zedekiah going there at that particular time. Uh, when Zedekiah gets back... We find that you've got the false prophet Hananiah is like, oh, yes, the Jews are coming back in two years' time uh, because he sort of sees the, the political wind blowing a new direction. He's taking some guesses there. Followed by Zedekiah hosting a conference of leaders from you know, very, very powerful nations from around the world, Western provinces, to plot against Babylon, followed by an alliance with Egypt, which is the, you know, the, the rival superpower to Babylon, followed by uh, Sametichus II, that's Pharaoh of Egypt, going on a royal tour of the Western Babylonian provinces where he doesn't take an army, he doesn't take security forces, and he is cordially received. <laughs> so it's a little bit like Vladimir Putin taking a tour of the western states of the United States, and everybody's kind of happy to see him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can see what's happening here, can't you? <laughs> they have suddenly found a god who is willing to stand up to uh, a superpower, uh, you know, the, the the empire, and they've found a rival superpower who might be convinced to do the same thing. Mm. It's going to go very badly for all of them, and uh, we find that you know Jeremiah prophesies and says, "Don't have anything to do with this alliance. Don't have anything to do with Egypt. Mm. Um, it's not going to come to anything." Um, you're of going course, to be, no one listens to him. Of course, no one listens to him. That's right. Okay, so once once all this has happened. And it all settles down because it does all settle down and it does all come to nothing. You know, Jeremiah and all these Jews actually end up down there in, um, in Egypt and it's almost like a self-imposed exile down there. And you can go to Elephantine Island today. You can see the community that they built there. They even built their own temple down there. 
But it all comes to nothing. And uh, what you find is that Nebuchadnezzar then has to reappoint a whole bunch of officials. Because a bunch of these guys have been incredibly disloyal, including, as we find out, Zedekiah. And when that's found out, of course, Zedekiah, you know, he ends up in all kinds of strife as well. But as a result of that, we have what's called the prism of new Western appointments. So he's going to go through the West. He's going to um, make new appointments right through the West of, you know, because that's where that's where all the trouble is. There are five different kinds of offices that are listed on this particular prism. There are 60 appointments that are listed. Um, so there are new court officials. There are new officials of the land, officials of towns, district officials, and Western vassal kings that are listed that he has replaced on this particular prism. Um, now, of course... Some of these, such as uh, court officials, are people that he are from the Western provinces but are working in his court but who need to be replaced because he doesn't trust the old ones anymore. Like ambassadors, if you want. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. Okay, so it's interesting to go down through this list. There's about 60 different names on the list and there are a number of names that we know from the Bible. For instance... Uh, Nebuzaradan um, is the guy who burned Jerusalem after it was conquered. You can read about him in 2 Kings 25. Um, and on this particular prism, he is called Nebuzaradinam. I like the Hebrew way of doing Nebuzaradan. I'm, maybe I'm just more used to reading that one. Then you've got Nergal Sari Asur, who in the Bible is known as Nergal Sarariza. Um, who's a Babylonian official who cooperated with Nebuzaradan in setting affairs in Judah after the conquest of Jerusalem. Um, so we read about him twice in Jeremiah chapter 39. But then we come to this passage in Daniel chapter 3 and verse 30. The Bible says, Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So the Bible says that these guys were not sent back to you know, their native country to become officials there. They became court officials. That's what the Bible says. And as you go down through the, um, the prism of new Western appointments, you come to Hananu, otherwise known as Hananiah in the Bible, chief of the merchants of Babylon. Then you come to Adinabu, known in the Bible as Abednego, uh, or Abednebo, secretary of the crown prince Amal. Um, and then, of course, you come to Meshalim or Mishael, Keeper of the slave girls. All in Babylon. All in all, Babylon. All positions based in. All given positions being promoted to high positions in the court of Babylon, just as the Bible said they wow. would. And that is quite unlikely considering their own countrymen are rebelling against Babylon. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar goes, no, no, I know, I trust you guys, you guys are different. Uh huh. And I'll keep you. But yeah, yeah. Everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> he is so sus of every everyone else. Mm. And, of course, it's a wise move on his part in many ways because, once again, he's trying to keep his empire together. Nebuchadnezzar was the kind of person who did try and use diplomacy rather than military force. He was never a great general. He was a, he was a builder and a, and, a, and a diplomat and a educator uh, rather than, um, you know, 
a, a Julius Caesar or an Alexander the Great. Maybe that was, that, maybe that was that's more why, his father. Yeah, maybe that's why he appears so hot tempered because he doesn't actually want to, <laughs> to 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 have bloodshed. So he um, uh, says, you know, I'm going to turn your house into rubble, hoping <laughs> hoping that people will just stay in line yeah, and, uh, and he won't actually have to do it. It's actually a model you often find in um, in the ancient world where you have David, who is the warrior, followed by Solomon, who is the CEO. You have Nabopolassar, who is the warrior, followed by Nebuchadnezzar, who is the CEO. You have Cyrus, the warrior, followed by Darius, the CEO. You know, it's something that you, you often see through history. You have these, these great businessmen that follow great warriors. Mm-hmm. And, of course, this is who Nebuchadnezzar was. But the important thing here is that when it comes to the Bible story, there is so little that has been discovered through archaeology. But in that little that we have discovered, we have been able to confirm so much of what happened. And, uh, you know, the key is that in the field of biblical archaeology, in fact, in the field of archaeology, full stop, there has never, ever been a discovery made to prove the Bible wrong. Isn't that incredible? Not one. I mean, there are a lot of claims for that. Oh, yeah, lots of claims. But there has never been anything that proves the Bible story wrong. There are many questions that are asked, and it's like, really? Could it be that way? Mm-hmm. You know, our evidence seems to point another direction, but there's never been anything to prove it wrong. And out of, you know, the minuscule amount of stuff that has been discovered, you know, here we've got five names that we know from the Bible just being confirmed from archaeology. There has been over 100 individuals in the Bible that have been confirmed from archaeology. And, you know, this is, this is going back to, uh, to really ancient times right here. And so the lesson today is that you can trust the Bible. We're going to have to come to Revelation 13 tomorrow. This is Josh Cunningham with Three Chords. Follow your heart is what they say I know that if I do I'll be following something I can't know Deceitful and untrue I couldn't love you if I tried I couldn't find a way Unless my heart is led by God I'll only go astray If we want to be one heart, one flesh One instead of two There's gotta be three cords woven God and me and you If our hearts burn within us with The fire that consumes Only then can we say I love you Well God is love He gives to us a priceless gift that's free He gave himself, he gave his all Unconditionally I want to love you like he does, Lord Give me eyes to see The only way I can is if You live inside of me If we want to be one heart, one flesh One instead of two There's got to be three cords woven God and me and you our hearts burn within us with the fire that consumes Only then can we say I love you
Love is kind, love never fails It ain't boastful, proud or rude It bears all things, believes all things Rejoices in the truth And love will never seek her own Love's patient, love endures And if we want love like that It's what we'll have to do If we wanna be one heart, one flesh One instead of two There's gotta be three cords woven God and me and you If our hearts burn within us with The fire that consumes Only then can we say I love you Josh Cunningham with Three Chords. You're listening to The Breakfast Show and we are about to have our question of the day. Maddie, what have you got for us there? I think we're going to continue on with... Uh, oh, yes, we never finished that one from Darren. That was a really good yes. question. Um, one of, um, and, and, and Darren's done really good here because he's done some research. He's given yep. us some Bible verses. Given us Bible verses. Yep. Um, yeah, I think the, the question and the part of the question we didn't quite get to is that, um, let me read it here. There are a number of verses in the Bible that seem to um, say that to, to indicate that a believer who has received God's free gift of salvation cannot lose it. Um, so yeah, yep. And uh, of course, a couple of verses highlighted here was Romans eleven twenty nine and Ephesians one thirteen, um, and I think it says something there about um, God's promises being irrevocable. Okay, so let's go and read these passages. Let's read what they do say. Let's try not to read into them anything that they don't say. Because what is interesting about these passages is, in many ways, what they don't say. In in, in the context of this subject, the most interesting part about the passages is what they actually avoid saying. Okay, so let's go to... uh, Start in uh, where we Romans eleven and verse twenty nine. So let's go over there very quick. Romans eleven and verse twenty nine, where it says in the KJV, "For the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance." Yeah, okay, that's a little bit old Englishy. Let's try it from the NLT eleven twenty nine, where it says, "For God's gifts and His call." can never be withdrawn. 
Okay, so here's how it works. God, the, the salvation is a gift, right? And the Bible says that God's gifts can never be withdrawn. So he gives you the gift of salvation. He can never withdraw it. All right? Yep. It's pretty straight, plain and straightforward. On that, many people would assume, and it's an assumption, that because God can never withdraw his gift, you can never lose it. It's there forever. He has taken away your freedom of choice. It is gone forever. It will never, ever be returned from you. You are going to be saved regardless of whether you want to or not. Hmm. That's not what the Bible says. Let's read what it says. It says that God will never withdraw his gift. The Bible does not say that we can never reject that gift. And so this is like the gift of salvation, as we've said before, is like any gift. If you give me a gift, I can receive that gift and say thank you and take that gift and have it for myself. And at some future point, I can come to you and I can return it. Often happens in the case of an engagement. You know, a man will give a woman an engagement ring. At some particular point, that's a gift that he's given to her and he's never going to take it back. Mm -hmm. He's never going to withdraw that gift because he loves that woman. Uh, But at any point, she can break off the engagement. Mm. They're not married. Um, And if she feels that the relationship is going sourly, she can break off that engagement and she can hand that engagement gift back. He hasn't withdrawn the gift. It's been handed back to him. And it's like, you know, Christ and the church. The Bible says that, you know, we are engaged, espoused to Christ. He is the bridegroom. We are the bride. And at any particular point, we can break that engagement um, and cease to have Christ as our fiancé and hand back the engagement ring. It shows you a little bit about God's character in this, I think, because it shows you that God will open the door and he won't shut it. He's That's not right. the one that shuts Absolutely. the door. Absolutely. Um, and he's willing to wait and wait and uh, have patience and try to draw you closer to him. Um, and it is us that makes the decision. He's knocking on the door and it's us that makes Do Do we want to open the door to him or do we want to reject the call and live our own lives? And so this is what the what is significant about what the Bible avoids saying. The Bible avoids saying that we can never give that gift back. It avoids that. It says, yes, God will never withdraw it. He will never take it back. But the Bible avoids saying that we can never give it back. We're going to come back and we're going to continue this uh, question of the day because it's a very, very important one. Uh, We're going to talk about the seal of the Holy Spirit and what the seal of the Holy Spirit is all about, what it means, um, and how it relates to the concept of salvation and whether we can lose our salvation or not. Precious blood 
sinner's perfect plea Back, guys, that was uh, Chris Wagoner with Oh How I Love Jesus. You're listening to The Breakfast Show. We've come to the end of the show. We've still got one more clue to the quiz that has not been put out there that uh, will give you one last opportunity and call through in about the next five minutes or so and uh, have a crack and a prize will be coming your direction. What have we got over there? Steps to Christ, I think, this time, or was it something else? That's right. Steps, Steps to Christ. Christ yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Steps to Christ coming your way uh, if you can answer this one. Uh, okay, what have you got for us? Jesus said to me, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Oh, so Jesus talked. Okay, so this is interesting. This is actually the only place in the Bible. Is it the only place or the most significant place? Either which way. I think it's the only place in the Bible that actually talks about being born again. 
You know, we, we as Christians, yep. born again is like the most common thing that we talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the only place that in the Bible it talks about it. Who was that said to? What conversation was that all about? If you know the answer, you know what number to call. Give us a call right now, 1-800-324-843 or text us on 0491-064-669. At the end of our show, we don't just give prizes to the person who can answer the quiz, but there is also a prize going to the first caller through at the end of the show after we announce our free gift for the day. What have you got for us there, Maddie? Nature's superfoods. Okay, so we've been giving this way uh, quite a bit recently. And, you know, with things going around like the coronavirus, what we're finding is that people who are in good health are the ones who are surviving it. It's people who have pre-existing health conditions, people who are frail or elderly who are dying from it. And the solution to good health begins with good eating. And good eating begins with a good recipe book. So Nature Superfoods right here is a great recipe book full of great recipes. Um, of course, if you win this prize, you will need to invite Maddie and I over for dinner one evening. That is part of the condition. No, it's That's not. That's the deal. <laughs> That's that. the deal. That's the deal. We will come over for dinner. You can cook us some delicious food from your new free cookbook. And... Uh, <clears throat> that would be amazing. No. Can, I, can I put in an order already? Avocado <laughs> pizza looks pretty good on you. All right, there you go. All right, we're going to need to finish up our show for the day. Um, we just want to remind you all that we love to promote Bible study in all its shapes and forms. The most important thing to do when it comes to Bible study is to just read your Bible. But if you're having, if you would like to do, you know, study it deeper, know more about it, any of that kind of thing, give us a call because we would love to connect you with people who can help you. One-on-one, small groups, online, correspondence, however you would like to do it. Don't forget to talk faith, live faith, act faith, and you will grow strong in Jesus. Baby